I need thee every hour. In that spirit, we come to God's word this morning. We're going to look this morning at the middle of Genesis 45 through the middle of Genesis 46 in our journey through the life of Joseph. And I'm going to start reading from Genesis 45, verse 16. When the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all his officials were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your brothers, do this. Load your animals and return to the land of Canaan and bring your father and your families back to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will enjoy the fat of the land. You're also directed to tell them, do this. Take some carts from Egypt for your children and your wives and get your father and come. Never mind about your belongings because the best of all Egypt will be yours. So the sons of Israel did this. Joseph gave them carts as Pharaoh had commanded. And he also gave them provisions for their journey. To each of them he gave new clothing, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five sets of clothes. And this is what he sent to his father, 10 donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and other provisions for his journey. Then he sent his brothers away. And as they were leaving, he said to them, don't quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he is a ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, I'm convinced. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel set out with all that was his. And when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob left Beersheba. And Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives and the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. So Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt, taking with him their livestock and their possessions they had acquired in Canaan. Jacob brought with him to Egypt his sons and grandsons and his daughters and granddaughters, all his offspring. Now skipping to verse 26. All those who went to Egypt with Jacob, those who were his direct descendants, not counting his son's wives, numbered 66 persons. With the two sons who had been born to Joseph in Egypt, the members of Jacob's family, which went to Egypt, were 70 in all. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we need you every hour, and we need to hear a word from you. We need to hear your voice to give perspective on our lives. And so we pray, Lord, that you'd speak to us by your spirit through your word this morning. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our summer series has been on the life of Joseph, and I have titled this series Living in a Story of Indestructible Hope. Every story has a plot tension that keeps that story moving forward and keeps you engaged. If you saw Jack Ryan season four, you know the basic plot tension of really every season. I mean, does Jack Ryan stay alive? Or actually, we know he stays alive because there's another season, so he has to stay alive. But really, it's, does he defuse the bomb before it detonates? 
Does he save the country from the foreign threat? Uh, I know it's opening weekend for Barbie, and some of us are wondering, how can you make a two-hour movie about Barbie? What, what could that plot tension be? <laughs> Every good story has a plot tension that moves the story forward. And the plot tension in the story of Joseph is these two threats to the survival of this family. The first threat is brokenness. Will the broken relationship between Joseph and his brothers, I mean, this family is fractured at the beginning, will they be healed? And then the second threat is starvation. Will this, will this family survive the seven-year famine in the land? And as we've been going through this story, we, we realize there's another player in this story. It's God himself. God is a player in this story, and he's at work in this story to rescue this family from both threats. Last week, we looked at his rescue from brokenness. God in his providence reunites Joseph with his brothers in Egypt, and through repentance and forgiveness, they experience this wonderful, joyous reconciliation. This week, we're going to see how God miraculously saves his people, this family, from starvation. God provides for this family and saves them in this famine. And here, I think, is the focus of our verses, what holds them together. It's how God keeps his promises to sustain his people. And why this might be a particular encouragement to you if you are a Christian here this morning is this. There are, if you haven't noticed it, a lot of headlines these days about the decline of the church in the United States. In a Guardian article from January of this year, researchers report that churches are closing at rapid numbers in the U.S. as congregations dwindle and the younger generation of Americans abandon Christianity altogether. In 2017, LifeWay surveyed young adults aged uh, 18 to 22 who had attended church regularly for at least uh, a year during high school. They found out that 7 out of 10 had stopped attending church regularly. Back in 1972, Pew Research found that 92% of, of Americans said they were Christian. But Pew Research forecasts that by a year 2070, that number will drop below 50%. And the number of religiously unaffiliated Americans, or so-called nuns, N-O-N-E-S, will probably outnumber those adhering to Christianity. If you're a reader of the New York Times, you know that there was a four-part series recently on how Americans are falling away from religion. and explores the reasons why the largest and fastest religious shift in America's history is taking place. In the last 25 years alone, about 15% of American adults, that is about 40 million people, have stopped going to church. They've de-churched. And it raises this question, what is the future of the church? Will God sustain his people? Perhaps some of you are asking this question very personally this morning. Because if there are cultural challenges for the church today, there are also cultural challenges for individual Christians today. And you know very well. That if you say the wrong thing in the workplace, or if you hold Orthodox Christian views in certain areas and that becomes public, or you identify as a Christian or the wrong kind of Christian, you'll be judged, marginalized, and canceled. And so this question comes up again, will God sustain his people? And the answer of Genesis 45 and 46 is yes. God keeps his promises to sustain his people. G.K. Chesterton, 
The English author and Christian apologist from the early 1900s puts it this way. He says, at least five times the Christian faith has, to all appearances, gone to the dogs. In each of these five cases, it was a dog that died. God keeps his promises to sustain his people. In our verses this morning, there are three promises that I want to point out that God keeps. The promise of provision, the promise of presence, and the promise of preservation. Doesn't always happen, but there's alliteration. There's three P words, provision, presence, and preservation we're going to look at this morning. First is the promise of provision. In the last passage, if you were here last week, you know the brothers of Joseph took their second trip to Egypt, and on that visit, Joseph tests them to see if their hearts have changed. And Judah, who is a spokesman for the brothers, speaks and demonstrates his changed heart. There's a new compassion, a new humility, a, a new love for his younger brother, Benjamin. And Joseph sees that, and his heart is melted. His heart breaks open. And what uh, comes out of that is a tear-filled, joy-filled, embrace-filled reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. That brings us to verse 16 of our passage this morning. Pharaoh hears that Joseph's brothers have come, and out of gratitude to Joseph, who has really saved Egypt, the country, in this famine, out of gratitude for Joseph, he, he says, verse 17, he says to Joseph, tell your brothers, do this, load your animals and return to the land of Canaan, and bring your father and your families back to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you can enjoy the fat of the land. I mean, it's an incredible invitation. This is a royal invitation from the king himself. Move here, and I'll give you the best land in all of Egypt. I mean, that's, that's a hard invitation to turn down. It's not just that. Verse 18, he says, You're directed to tell them, do this. Take some carts from Egypt for your children and your wives, and get your father and come. These carts were probably royal wagons. They, they must have been very impressive, because I mentioned four times uh, in this passage. Pharaoh is essentially saying, start packing. I'm sending you my own fleet of black luxury SUVs with tinted windows. You're going to ride in style to Egypt. And then verse 20 says, never mind about your belongings because the best of all Egypt will be yours. He's not talking about the land. He already offered them the land. He's talking about what will replace their belongings so they don't need to bring them. It's, he's offering them the best things in Egypt. The best homes, the best furnishings, the, be the best of what they need to live. I mean, don't miss it. This is an amazing moment. I mean, Joseph's brothers and their families have essentially just won the lottery. I mean, it's like they have inherited an unexpected windfall that changes everything. It's like they have just won an all-expenses-paid vacation to their dream destination, only this is not just a vacation. This is their lives. Joseph's brothers have in a moment gone from famine to fortune. In the blink of an eye, from starvation to sufficiency. In God's providence, he has provided abundantly for Joseph's family, more than all they can ask or imagine. And then in verse 21, Joseph offers the brothers his own gifts. To each brother he gives new clothing, and that may seem strange for adult children to be exchanging clothing. Until you remember that it was brother, Joseph's brothers who stripped the clothes off Joseph's back years ago. 
And this is a poignant moment for Joseph to give clothes to his brothers is an evidence and symbol of how deeply he had forgiven them and how deep this reconciliation was. He gives Benjamin 300 shekels of silver, which one commentator suggests is 22 years of deferred birthday gifts, and five sets of clothing. No longer do the brothers get jealous of this. He gives gifts for his father, donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt and grain for the journey back. When the brothers reach home, they go to their father and what a story they had to tell. What remarkable news they have to share. They, they, they say, Joseph is alive and he is now the ruler of all Egypt. And Jacob hears this, and he is stunned into disbelief. I mean, you can hardly blame him, right? For 20 years, more than 20 years, he has lived with the belief that his son Joseph is dead. And now, essentially, he hears news that his son has been raised from the dead. He's alive. He, J Jacob initially doesn't believe it. He, he's stunned. I mean, it's almost, it's almost too much for him to take in. And what makes him believe is when he sees the carts, those royal wagons. I told you they were impressive. When he sees those royal wagons, it convinces him. He says, I'm convinced my, my son is alive. I'm going to go see him before, he, before I die. And interestingly, there's no mention in this, in this conversation of Pharaoh's generosity, because that, that's astounding. That's amazing. But there's no mention of this overwhelming generosity. Because what matters far more to Jacob than property or wealth is his son. And he hears that his son is alive. This is the promise of provision beyond all imagination. There is this moment I think of in the story of Louis Zamperini in the book Unbroken. Louis Zamperini was an airman in World War II, was shot down and put into a Japanese POW camp where he and thousands of other prisoners suffered. And they were basically death camps. They were fed grossly inadequate diets of spoiled food and water and then forced to labor. Many died of starvation. But what kept these prisoners alive was a hope of rescue. And Unbroken tells the transformation that took place in these prison camps on the day Jap uh, Japan was defeated and the war was won. On that day, Louis Zamperini in, in this book says, he, the prisoners built a huge bonfire and danced. American fighter jets began flying over and dropping bags of supplies. Each man received a half tin of tangerines, a pack of biscuits, two cigarettes, and candy. And that was just the appetizer. Three days later, six loaded B-29s flew over and giant pallets swinging under red, white, and blue parachutes dropped down from the sky. Boxes fell all over the landscape and pallets broke open. Cascades of pink, pink, uh, pink peaches filled the camp. One crate exploded and peas rained down from the sky. A few days before, there was scarcity and starvation. And now suddenly, there was an abundance of food and medicine and clothing. Men had seconds and thirds in their meals they, until they couldn't eat anymore. Three men drank two gallons of cocoa. There were days of bliss and euphoria. More than a thousand planes saturated the POW camps all over Japan with nearly 4,500 tons of spam and fruit cocktail and soup and chocolate and medicine. And famine was turned into feasting. It is exactly what God does for Joseph's family. And the question is, will God do that for us? 
Is there a promise that God will provide for our needs? I think the answer is yes. It's Matthew 6, what Gary read this morning from the New Testament. Jesus says, look at the birds. Look at the lilies, which are in full bloom. The flowers are blooming this summer. Jesus says, look at the birds. Look at the, the, the flowers of the field. See how God feeds them and clothes them. How much more will he do that for his children? Of course, it's not always the best of Egypt. God promises to meet our needs, not our greeds. It's not always in an instant. Remember the manna in the wilderness? How did God provide for his people in the wilderness, the manna? He did it very quietly. Came like frost in the morning. I mean, how, how loud is frost? It's, it's, it's very quiet. It just appears. God provided quietly, daily, every morning it appeared. He, he didn't give one lump amount to cover all their needs. He, he gave it to them daily, and then he gave it to them faithfully over 40 years. And sometimes, my friends, that's how God provides for us, very quietly and daily and faithfully over years. Sometimes it's more than all we can ask or imagine. There are those moments, and we have been witness to those moments, I think, here at Redeemer Montclair. Because every year, heading into December, we have a significant shortfall in our budget. And then every year that I've been here nearly, by the end of the year, by January, we have a surplus, a great surplus. God has provided through you and through your generosity. We, we see, we have a witness that God does more than all we can ask or imagine. It's the promise of his provision. Secondly, there is a promise of his presence. When Jacob sets out for Egypt, he stops at Beersheba and offers sacrifices to God. Beersheba is uh, geographically the last stop in the promised land before you set foot in Egypt. And there is a moment in the movie The Fellowship of the Ring, or the Lord of the Rings series, when Samwise, Gamgees, and Frodo set out on their journey. And as they're on their journey, Sam suddenly stops Frodo and says to him, this is it. If I take one more step, it'll be the farthest away from home I've ever been. Sam realized that this is a significant moment when he makes a decisive break with his past and steps into an unknown future. And this is Beersheba for Jacob. Beersheba is also the place where uh, Jacob's grandfather Abraham met with God. It's the place where his father Isaac uh, had a vision of God. God appeared to him. So Beersheba is significant. And, and Jacob offers sacrifices to God at Beersheba to, do, to seek divine guidance and assurance that God will go with him if he leaves the promised land and goes down to Egypt. It is not a minor decision. If you know the history, Abraham goes down to Egypt during a famine, no less. And that's where he lies about his wife Sarah and gets himself into all sorts of trouble. God tells Isaac not to go down to Egypt, but to stay in the promised land because that's where God's blessing is. So over the years, Egypt had become this place of temptation, this place, of, uh, this place outside of God's blessing. So it's no surprise that Jacob stops in Beersheba to seek God's guidance and assurance. Should I do this? Should I go down to Egypt? And God appears to Jacob in a vision, and this is what he says. Look at chapter 46, verses 3 and 4. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. 
I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. God is telling Jacob a number of important things. He says, first, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. Apparently, Jacob is afraid. I mean, for good reason. I mean, am I stepping outside of God's blessing and plan? God says to to Jacob, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. He reiterates the promise that he's made to his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. He says, that promise is still good. I'm still going to make you into a great nation. Even if you go down to Egypt, I'm still going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to do it there. The promise is still good. It's not off. And then, most importantly, he says, I will go down to Egypt with you. Which is a remarkable moment because everyone that was religious in those days believed in tribal deities, gods with boundaries, God that, gods that, that were just controlled local situations. I mean, beyond that locality, they, were, they weren't gods. They didn't have any power or, or any control. And God is telling Jacob, I'm a God without boundaries. I am the transcendent, omnipotent God, and I will go down with you to Egypt. And I'm greater than all the Egyptian gods. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I'll bring you back. And so with this promise from God, Jacob leaves Beersheba and goes down to Egypt, joined by God himself. God promises Jacob his own presence and says, I will go with you to Egypt. Which is interesting, because that is evidence that there is different guidance to different people in different circumstances. I mean, to his father Isaac, God says, don't go down to Egypt. But to Jacob, he says, do go down to Egypt. So the question is, should you go down to Egypt? And the answer is, it depends. If you go down to Egypt to take matters into your own hands and not trust God, that's not a wise decision. If you go down to Egypt to pursue wealth and security apart from God, that's not a wise decision. But if you go to Egypt because God sends you, as in Joseph, or if you go to Egypt because God directs you, as with Jacob, his presence goes with you, and that makes all the difference. And so the ultimate importance is not where you go, but who goes with you. And it asks us the question, does God go with us? Does God go with you? Are you looking for his presence? Is that the most important thing you realize you need? Does God go with you? Are you looking for his presence and trusting in him? Of course, God's presence doesn't mean that there won't be any hardship. Israel does face hardship in Egypt. They'll be put in slavery. But the important thing is God will be present with his people. It's the promise of his presence. Does God make a presence, make, a, make an important, a, a significance, a difference in our lives? Since Tim Keller passed away a few weeks ago, there have been a lot of podcasts and articles written as a tribute to his life. Uh, of course, everyone knew Tim Keller for his preaching. His preaching was amazing. I, I, it ministered to me so many times over the years. It's remarkable how many people have boxes of his old sermon tapes stashed away in a closet somewhere. It's remarkable how many uh, pastors have learned how to preach from Tim. How many Christians around the world have discovered what it means to live a gospel-centered life from him. How many non-Christians have met Christ through Tim. Uh, But here's an interesting thing that I learned from Colin Hansen, who spent countless hours interviewing Tim for the book he wrote on on Tim's intellectual and spiritual formation. He said this. He said that when Tim started out as a pastor, no one would have guessed the influence he would have because Tim Keller got a C in his first preaching class. It's kind of like Michael Jordan getting cut from his high school basketball team. 
Uh, Colin Hansen says, if you had a lineup of the first generation of PCA pastors, you would not have picked him out as the most promising of pastors. You'd not have picked him out to plant Redeemer in New York because his demeanor and personality seemed a better fit for the classroom than for a New York City pulpit. When Tim's college friend Bruce Henderson heard that Tim had accepted years ago a call to pastor his first church in Hopewell, Virginia, with only 90 people in the congregation, his friend said, they must be desperate. <laughs> he was, again, just to clarify, he was not talking about Tim and Kathy being desperate to take the church. He was talking about the church being desperate to take Tim. Colin Hansen said, Tim in those days would not have impressed the church leaders as relationally adept. So then. How did Tim Keller become the preacher he became? A great preacher. And I'd suggest to you it was God's presence in his life. Tim Keller says it himself in his book on preaching. He says at the beginning, while the difference between a bad sermon and a good sermon is mainly the responsibility of the preacher, the difference between good preaching and great preaching lies mainly in the work of the Holy Spirit, in the heart of the listener as well as the preacher. I would suggest that it's God's presence. And the power of his Holy Spirit that made Tim Keller the man and the preacher that he was. Because early in his life, by all accounts, he was an average person. It's God's presence that made him. And so what can God's presence do in your life and mine? See, God's presence makes Jacob. God's presence makes Moses, this uncertain stutterer. God's presence makes him a mighty leader of God's people. It's God's presence that makes Nehemiah, this cupbearer, turned into a, a, a role that would be remembered for all of redemptive history and helping to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. So I ask again, how important is God's presence in life, in your life, in my life? If you go to Egypt without God to pursue wealth and security and achievement, it will be a dead end and you'll end up empty. If you're trying to get your kids to Egypt and, and having them play travel sports and, and, and music lessons and, and, and enrichment programs and, and, and all sorts of things and try to build up this ideal resume so they can get to Egypt. But you're doing so many things that there's no God in, in, in the story in their, in their lives. What does it profit a man if he should gain the entire world but forfeit his soul? What makes our lives count? What makes us not just good but great? What gives us a role in God's great redemptive story is when his presence is in our lives. It's not where we go, but who goes with us. That's the promise of his presence. Third, the promise of his preservation. You'll notice that the part of the passage I didn't read was verses 8 through 27, the genealogy. Because genealogies are hard to listen to, and maybe they're even harder to read publicly. I was scared to do it. <laughs> and they're about as interesting as reading a phone book. Because it's not your genealogy. But you know, people pay a lot of money to do DNA tests be, to, to find out about their genealogy. And so this, if, this is, if this is your genealogy, you'd be very interested. So for the Israelites, this genealogy is a highlight of Genesis. Why? Because it is a list of all their family members, all their uncles and aunts and grandfathers and grandmothers who were rescued in the famine and who went down to Egypt. They all went and not one was left behind. At the end of this genealogy, 
we're told that the members of Jacob's family that went down to Egypt numbered 70. And this week, if you're very bored and you're looking for something to do, you're so bored that you want to check the math of the Genesis writer and you, you want to tally up all the names that are listed here, you'll find that the math is a little wonky. You might like, have a hard time figuring out how, they, how he gets to 70. And the reason why is because the commentators suggest that 70 is not a literal number, it's a figurative number. Because 70 in the Bible is, a num is an ideal and complete number. And it's meant to echo the 70 nations listed in Genesis 10 that represented all the people descended from Noah after the flood, the restart, restart of humanity. And therefore, the biblical and theological significance of 70 of Jacob's family going down to Egypt is this. God is establishing a new humanity, a new people belonging to him that are numerous. I mean, from Abraham and Sarah, this, this barren old couple that couldn't even have kids now have 70 descendants. This family already is numerous. There are, they are diverse in these 70. There are Hebrews and Canaanites and Egyptians, men and women, young and old, heroes and zeros, misfits and those with a shady past, but all counted and included among this new humanity. Numerous and diverse and hopeful. A people of God's promise, created by God's promise, sustained and preserved by God's promise, with their future hope squarely placed in God's promise. And the question is, what does the story of God's new humanity have to do with us? Are these promises of provision and presence and preservation for us? And the answer is yes, because we have a brother in Jesus Christ who is also raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the king, who is the Lord of all things. Interestingly, when the brothers told Jacob that Joseph was alive, raised from the dead, so to speak, Lord over all, he didn't believe it. He's like, show me some evidence. I don't, I don't believe this. And when the first disciples were told that Jesus, who was dead, had, was alive and had been resurrected from the dead and was Lord over all, they didn't believe it. They had to be shown evidence. Jesus himself had to appear before them and show them his nail-scarred hands. When Jacob sees the evidence, these carts and all these things coming from Egypt, it's evidence that Joseph is alive. When Jacob sees the evidence and believes and goes to his now-risen son, my friends, he experiences God's provision and his presence and his preservation. And so it is when we believe that Jesus has died. Our older brother who, is, who had died is risen again and ascended and Lord of all. When we go to him, we experience God's provision and his presence because Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And we experience his preservation because as Kevin said at the beginning of our service, Jesus is the shepherd who will not lose one sheep that has been entrusted to him. Not one. God will preserve his people. It's through Jesus that we become a part of God's new humanity. And it's through Jesus that God sustains his people. A friend of mine is a history professor at Eastern Kentucky University. His name is Todd Harch. He also studies global Christianity. Back in March 2021, Todd gave a lecture that I listened to about how we are living at a very pivotal time in history on the level of the fall of Rome or the Reformation. And you're like, wow, really? 
What is, the, what is what so pivotal moment is, is happening? He says this, the center of Christianity is shifting. For a thousand years, the majority of Christians lived in the global north, that is Europe and the United States and Canada. But he says, in our lifetime, that has shifted because most Christians now live in the global south. That is Africa and Asia and Latin America. The center of Christianity started off in Jerusalem and then it moved to Europe for a thousand years and today it has moved to Africa. And so by 2100, over half of the global population of Christians will be in Africa. Or another way to say it, the majority of Christians in the world will live in Africa. And so world Christianity will be seen as an African religion. If world Christianity to this point has had a European flavor, it will have an African flavor by the next century. For example, Faith Tabernacle in Nigeria is, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, the biggest church in the world. It has a facility on 530 acres. It has seating for 50,000 people with an overflow seating of thousands more. It has started 300 churches around the world. Redeemed Christian Church of God in Lagos, Nigeria, is one of the fastest-growing churches in the world. It has a monthly prayer service, which 500,000 people attend, and it goes all night. Children sleep on mats. Christianity in many places in Africa is ubiquitous. You, you can't go anywhere without encountering a church, a chapel, or a Christian billboard, because Africa has become the center of world Christianity. When Christian missions started in Jerusalem, it aimed to reach Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, which at that time was Africa. Now, interestingly, churches in Africa see themselves as the new Jerusalem. And they are starting to send out missionaries themselves to reach the ends of the earth, including Europe and the United States. <laughs> it's no accident. It's God's promise to sustain his people. It's evidence that Acts 1.8 has been fulfilled, that the gospel would start in Jerusalem and go to Judea and Samaria and reach the ends of the earth. It's evidence that the promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that they would become this great nation, that they would number more than the stars, has been fulfilled. That the, the, the great multitude that no one can count from Revelation 7.9 is already here from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. The church may be in decline in the U.S., but it's thriving in Africa. God keeps his promises to sustain his people, to provide for them, to be present with them, and to preserve them. And so, my friends, take heart. Don't despair. Don't be afraid. Every time the faith has gone to the dogs, the dog has died. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word of encouragement. We thank you, Lord, that you sustain your people and have done so through the ages. Lord, that you provide for us and, and you are present with us and you preserve us. Lord, give us confidence and hope. Even in circumstances that make us wonder, help us to put our trust in you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.